It seems kind of hopeless right now, but you're going to figure this out. This is pretty debilitating. I'm able to turn my pain into purpose. There are people out in the world that do understand what you're going through. Welcome to Major Pain. I'm your host, Jesse Mercury, and this week we'll be speaking with Judy Foreman, a lifelong journalist who spent most of her career at the Boston Globe as a science and medical writer. She had a nationally syndicated medical column featured in national and international outlets, including the Los Angeles Times, Dallas Morning News, Baltimore Sun, and others. She is the author of A Nation in Pain in 2014, The Global Pain Crisis in 2017, Exercise is Medicine in 2020, her first fiction novel, Crispered, in 2022, and she just released a memoir titled Let the More Loving One Be Me. In the early 2000s, in the midst of being a science and medical writer, Judy underwent her own chronic pain journey, and her experiences as a patient would forever alter her opinions on the medical establishment. So in this episode, we not only hear about Judy's chronic pain journey, we also get to pick her brain about the opioid crisis, her opinions on the medical establishment, and the gender disparity in healthcare and medical research. It is a fascinating conversation, and it's also super fun. I had such a blast talking to Judy. I'm thrilled to be able to share this episode with you today, and we'll get to it in just a few minutes. I have a little bit of news to share with you this week. Longtime podcast listeners, and especially the bonus podcast listeners over on Patreon, will have heard all about my partner Andy and her pituitary adenoma. We did an episode on the main podcast feed back in season one discussing her adenoma. And over the course of the last few years over on Patreon on the bonus episodes, we've been talking about how the medication for her adenoma has not been working and she finally made the decision to have surgery. And that surgery happened this week. It happened the day after last week's podcast came out. I'm very, very happy to report that the surgery went extremely well. It's sort of an intense surgery. The pituitary gland is right next to the brain, as well as being next to the carotid artery. There was a lot of preparation for this surgery and a lot of potentialities that we discussed that were definitely on the scary side, but the surgery went very well, no complications, and Andy is doing great home recovering, and we're both so excited to have this behind us. Once she's recovered, we will be doing an episode on the main podcast feed to talk about this surgery. So that will be something to look forward to on this podcast feed sometime in the next month or two when Andy is up to recording. I've been hard at work recording podcasts over here, and I've got some incredible stuff to share with you. Several episodes already recorded that are so interesting, really powerful stories, and even some diseases we've never covered on the show before. So make sure you are subscribed to Major Pain wherever you listen, and don't forget to leave us a positive rating and review. It's a great way to help out the show. Last week, we had a great episode with my friend, also named Jesse, who discussed his mystery illness. And I did get an interesting email from our listener, Alex, who recommended a potential diagnosis for Jesse to look into. And it's a disease that I have never heard of. It's called familial Mediterranean fever, or FMF. And according to the mayoclinic.org, familial Mediterranean fever is a genetic auto-inflammatory disorder that causes recurrent fevers and painful inflammation of your abdomen, chest, and joints. FMF is an inherited disorder that usually occurs in people of Mediterranean origin, including those of Jewish, Arab, Armenian, Turkish, North African, Greek, or Italian ancestry, but it can affect people in any ethnic group. And here's a little more info from rarediseases.org discussing episodes that are characteristic of this disease. It reads, These episodes are often accompanied by fever and sometimes a rash or headache. Occasionally, inflammation may occur in other parts of the body, such as the heart, the membranes surrounding the brain, and the spinal cord. 
So that was a little bit of education I got this week, learning about this disease that I'd never heard of before. I did, of course, pass this along to Jesse. It's a great reminder that there are so many diseases with so many overlapping symptoms, which is why it's so difficult to diagnose someone with a mysterious illness like Jesse's. So Alex, thank you for bringing that to our attention. This podcast is supported by our listeners on Patreon. If you're enjoying this show and you'd like to help support it to see it continue indefinitely, check out our ongoing campaign on Patreon. You can sign up to support the show with monthly financial contributions starting at just $2 per month. There are three different tiers of support, each with different levels of recognition on the show. Sign up gifts, including our major pain coasters and tote bags made by my mom. And everyone gains access to our monthly bonus episodes with myself and my partner, Andy. And those episodes are now available on Spotify once you've linked your Patreon and Spotify accounts. I want to make this show for as long as possible, but I need your support to do so. So head over to Patreon, patreon.com slash majorpainpodcast to check it out. Extra special thank you to our Patreon producers supporting this show at the highest tier of $25 per month, Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Trish O'Brien, and Hipster Leia. This episode is also supported through a creator grant through the Stimpunks Foundation. Stimpunks support neurodivergent and disabled individuals directly. It's an amazing organization. You can find them online at stimpunks.org. Another great way to support the show is to sign up to participate in research studies and surveys through Rare Patient Voice. Use our affiliate link, rarepatientvoice.com slash majorpainpodcast, and you will be supporting this show while you sign up. If you're selected to participate in a research study or survey, you can be paid an average of $120 per hour for your time. Finally, that pesky diagnosis can be of some use. This is a great way to participate in the furthering of our understanding of your disease. You can have any diagnosis at all, or you can be a caregiver to qualify to sign up. And of course, sharing the show with a friend, supporting us on social media, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at Major Pain Podcast is a great way to support the show. I'll remind you as always that my guest and I are not medical professionals, so please do not take any medical action based off what you hear on this podcast without first consulting your doctor. And with that, we'll get into our fantastic conversation with Judy Foreman about her amazing career as a science and medical writer and her chronic pain. Judy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk to you today. I know that we're going to have a lot to talk about. Uh, before we get into it, let's get to know you a little bit. So, Judy, why don't you tell us about yourself? Okay. Well, my name is Judy Foreman. And if you want to look me up, it's F-O-R-E-M-A-N. So, don't forget the E. Um, I'm a lifelong journalist. I spent most of my career at the Boston Globe as a science and medical writer. I had a nationally syndicated medical column in a whole bunch of papers. Um, I have a lot of curiosity, which is why I'm drawn to biology and medicine. Um, let's see, I have, I left the globe physically in the year 2000, but kept writing my column for a while. And now I'm writing books. I just finished my fifth book, which is a memoir called Let the More Loving One Be Me. And hopefully we can talk about that. Prior to that, just before that, I wrote a, a medical thriller called CRISPRD, C-R-I-S-P-R apostrophe D, which is about this new gene editing technique called CRISPR that a lot of people have heard of. 
um, and it can be used for good. I mean, it can cure a number of diseases and it, it's very promising. It could also be used for evil. And in my medical thriller, I invented an evil geneticist. <laughs> uh, <laughs> prior to that, I have three books, all published by Oxford University Press and Academic Press. Um, the first two on chronic pain, an issue I care about a lot. And the third one on called Exercise is Medicine, which is probably my favorite book. Um, and it talks about the many molecular, deep biological reasons why exercise has so many benefits in the body. Mm. Aside from that, I'm a competitive swimmer. Uh, I sing in a singing group. I'm in two book groups. I'm happily married. I have two grandchildren. Um, that's it. <laughs> Amazing. What a career. <laughs> in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah, so cool. So I know from hosting this podcast, there's so much that I've learned from the people that I talk to. I'm curious about being a uh, medical columnist, because I'm sure that you must have heard from people all the time or, you know, other people's stories must have gotten involved in that. Were, were there any sort of overarching conclusions that you drew about the medical system based off of your work as a columnist? Oh, my goodness. Well, <laughs> I think our insurance system does not help patients. It's not patient-centered. The medical system is kind of wrapping itself around the insurance system, and that is not to the benefit of most people. I think doctors are terrific. Nurses are unsung heroes. Mm. Physical therapists are unsung heroes. Um, I think the medical system at the moment is pretty broken. I mean, it takes months to get a doctor's appointment. Doctors themselves spend hours a day working on their electronic medical records that were supposed to speed things up and really have been clogging things up. So there's a lot of things wrong with it. The science, state of science in this country is terrific. There's a lot of fabulous research going on, life-saving research, fascinating research uh, in many fields, astronomy, but particularly biology. It's, it's just booming. So you have all these contrasts, you know, a, a, a delivery system that's not great, an academic system that's full of exciting discoveries. So it's a mixed bag. Well said. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, you've pinpointed a frustration of mine personally is that a lot of the research is not making it to the patient, which is so upsetting. If you have a disease that has no cure and there is a cure that's being worked on and maybe you're in, you know, a really dire situation, you know, let's get that to the patient. And it's really right. frustrating how hard it is. We, you know, before we started recording, we talked a bit about my recent diagnosis and how the science around it is so new. And I just got so lucky finding a doctor who was, you know, literate in mast cell activation syndrome. But that's super rare because the science is relatively new. That's why I always tell people, you know, if you can go to a teaching hospital, like I went to UW Medical Center, changed my life completely because the science is closer to the patient at a teaching hospital. Yes. Well, okay, let's jump into your story. I'm so curious to hear about <laughs> your medical journey because this is where I don't know much about. So let's jump into it. Judy, what is your major pain? Um, <laughs> am I allowed to talk politics? No. <laughs> 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 Guess not. We won't go there. Um, somewhere in the early 2000s, I began to have really bad neck pain, a lot of spasms. And my head was called, it's called cervical dystonia. Cervical meaning neck and dystonia meaning something screwed up with your muscles. Mm. And my head would be get tipped to the left and I would take both hands to get it back normal. Um, of course, I'm demonstrating on, on Zoom and you can't see me, but um, <laughs> really, really painful. 
And, you know, I, I sounds trivial, but I couldn't paint my toenails. I couldn't bend, you know, it would just kill my neck. Yeah. And if you're trying to go to sleep, there's a certain point when you're kind of sitting on the bed and you want to get your whole upper body and your head down. And there's kind of a no man's land of balance where you have to use your neck muscles to hold your head up. And that would just be excruciating to try to get to lying down. Once I was lying down, I was okay. Anyway, I was a medical writer at the Globe. I had the best Rolodex or, you know, contact list in town. Uh, and I had trouble finding help. Mm. I mean, I had all these contacts. And, you know, as a medical writer and columnist, I felt powerful. I could call people up on the phone and they say, oh, Boston Globe. Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll talk to you right away. As a patient, nothing, hmm. no power. I mean, it's just so striking how powerless patients are and feel. Finally, I got to a doctor who believed me. Women's pain in particular is not believed. Um, there's a lot of data on that. Even by women doctors, women's pain is not as believed as men's. Um, and I got, I forget whether it was MRIs or CAT scans, but what turned out I had something called spondylolisthesis, which basically means my vertebrae were sliding forward over each other and not quite like severing my spinal cord, but pressing on the nerves. So that was what was causing this so-called neuropathic pain. Um, and um, it got me interested uh, as a patient and as uh, uh, a columnist at the time, you know, um, why is there so much fuss about opioids? And it got me really investigating sort of the good side and the bad side of opioids. And there's been so much publicity about the opioid epidemic, which is horrible. People's lives are ruined by getting addicted to opioids. But people's lives are also ruined by chronic pain. Mm. And a lot of chronic pain patients are not able to get the opioids they need because of the stigma, because of the excessive restrictions, because of not being believed. And it's really a mess because as we focus on the people with opioid addictions who are also patients and need the focus, the chronic pain patients get absolutely left out in the cold. And that's horrible. I mean, the, the suicide rate for people with chronic pain is twice that for people without chronic pain. Yeah. So we have two epidemics. And as a society, we've only paid attention to one. Um, and that's unforgivable in my book. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. A lot, <laughs> so much in there that we should talk about a bit more. Um, but yeah, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, I just had a discussion at dinner last night about opiates. And I just know what it's like as a pain patient to have something that might help that a doctor is just unwilling to even try. And that's right. That that feeling of powerlessness that you discussed is really palpable. Right. I want to hear more about your pain journey. So once you had a diagnosis, once you figured out what it was, were they able to help? Was there a procedure that was able to help with your neck? No, I did not have any surgery, but I did do a lot of physical therapy. Mm. I think that helped. And I think perhaps just time helped. I'm not sure, but I'm I'm basically better, although I have sort of chronic spasms on the left side of my neck and, and uh, left shoulder. But I'm not in pain. I basically am not in pain now. 
but I'm very sympathetic to people who are yeah. because it's it's invisible and people with paint are not believed and um, there's no easy test for it. There's no blood test for it. You can get brain scans, which um, can show certain areas of the brain lighting up, which correlate with with the pain. But that's expensive, and most doctors won't won't do that. Yeah. So it's it's a huge problem for people. And I, I should also say, opioids are not the only answer. There's a lot a lot of other things that can help, but for certain kinds of major pain opioids are necessary and people have trouble getting them yeah so physical therapy am i saying this right spondylolisthesis is that very right? good <laughs> we've, we've i've heard of this before we've we've had a previous guest with a spondylolisthesis in their low back um what sort yeah. of a physical therapy can help someone with a spondylolisthesis in their neck well i went to uh i think it was called the new england spine center or the spine center at new england baptist hospital uh, they gave me exercises that you would have thought would be the exact wrong thing to do. <laughs> I'm like really putting my neck in extreme positions and uh, lifting things what we would think of as wrong, like with your back curled instead of your using your thighs. Um, but I gradually got better. Thank God. Uh, yeah. you know, it it really helped. I'm I'm a big swimmer, and I think that helps too um i i'm totally committed to exercise um as my second my third book is about exercise yeah. and exercise helps in a number of ways obviously you get muscles and flexibility but also biochemically when you exercise your brain pumps out a chemical this may be a lot to listen to but it's called bdnf which stands for brain derived neurotrophic factor and the name to remember by is by its nickname which is miracle grow for the brain <laughs> it makes nerve cells grow and uh it makes nerve cells grow in the hippocampus which is a memory center and it also improves mood and when your mood is a better then you're able to tolerate the pain better you can get a little bit out of that vicious cycle of pain causing depression and depression causing you know leading to more pain etc if you can kind of break that cycle that helps too and exercise is one way to try to break that cycle yeah absolutely and so it sounds like sort of strengthening the muscles in your neck um, and kind of focusing on the physical therapy sort of helped your body to sort of right itself. Yes. And how long were you in that excruciating pain? Oh, God, a long time, months and months and months. Um, I mean, it wasn't every moment, but it was the slightest wrong move yeah. would trigger it. You know, sitting in a chair and bending down to pick up a pencil off the floor would do it. I remember calling 911, you know, at like midnight one night thinking, you know, I can't stand this. And they, you know, the EMT guys came and they said, do you want to go to the hospital? And I thought, well, no, they'll just think I'm drug seeking. Hmm. Um, why would I go? And they're not going to do anything. I'll go back to bed. Yeah. Uh, and that happens to a lot of people. W were you accused of drug seeking behavior? No, I didn't. I didn't go on the, with the EMTs. I, um, I have been. So I, I definitely yeah, get it. Yeah. People are. That's the assumption is yeah. that you're drug seeking. Not that you've really got horrible pain. Yeah. Why is that? It's so frustrating. Why is that what people jump to? Very frustrating. Yeah. And why another one of my rants, um, medical schools, I have a whole chapter in my, my book on pain. Medical schools do not teach much about pain. 
it's very complicated. It's it's a really complicated neurological system that the body has because we need pain at some level. You know, you want to not get stuck by a poisonous snake if you can help. You know, you really <laughs> need to, you know, pain exists for a reason. It's a protector right. in some ways. Right. But um, when it's chronic, uh, it doesn't protect you from anything. The medical system is not really focused on pain the way it should be in medical school. So people don't learn about it. I remember when I was writing the book, realizing uh, some research showing that veterinary medical students get more education about pain than human doctors. Wow, that's fascinating. That's it also makes a lot of sense because you can't talk to your patient as a veterinarian. I had a dog who passed away at 17 years old. And when he started to be in pain constantly at the end, it was really, really difficult for me. You know, I'm just like, how do we get him out of pain? Right. And it's so interesting that we don't treat ourselves, our own bodies or our other humans that way. Right. I know. I know. We have more compassion for animals than people. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess with a, with a dog, you can assume the dog is not drug seeking. But um... <laughs> yeah, guess not. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what you said about being accused of being drug seeking. When I was interviewing people for my pain book, um, lots of people said that in the emergency room they don't proceed farther. They assume you're drug drug seeking. And this one poor guy was in horrible pain. At, um, only at the third time when he went to an ER did anybody do an MRI on him and it turned he had something, I forget what it was, something really wrong with him. Yeah. I, I, I was an aneurysm or something. And they um they operated that night. Wow. But he wasn't believed. And that was a man who wasn't believed. I hear stories like that constantly on the podcast. People yeah. not being believed when they had something seriously wrong. Countless stories like that on this podcast alone. And yeah, wow. I, I am also, you know, I'm a man and I've been disbelieved, but I also yeah. completely recognize that there is a huge issue with women not being believed. Yeah. And I'm curious, yeah. you mentioned the statistics on that. I'm curious to hear more about that. Women just tend to be under belief for all things, including heart attacks. You know, if they don't have the classic Hollywood symptoms um, and women's symptoms do seem to be different, they're not believed. It's terrible. And it's also women doctors who, who disbelieve women patients. Hmm. So it's it's sort of the doctor mentality as opposed to the what's happening with the patient. Yeah. When you, as a pain patient, when you find a doctor who believes you, it's nirvana. Mm -hmm. <laughs> when I finally got to a neurologist at the New England Baptist Hospital, and I, you know, for, with neck pain, I, you can't have your shoulders up too high because it hurts. And he first thing he did was get me a pillow to put my arms on. Oh. So I wasn't in pain in his office. And I thought, God, this guy gets it. Wow. You know. Yeah, it, that's amazing. Such a little thing, putting a pillow in my lap. Yeah. You might know this. You, you seem very up to date on research and how medical research is conducted. I'm wondering if because so much research is done on men, maybe there's a disproportionate amount of knowledge to men's bodies versus women's bodies. Well, on that point, you're completely right. And NIH, the National Institutes of Health, has said that when researchers study rats and mice and animal models of pain, uh, they should study female animals, and they don't. Mm. Most researchers are still studying male rats. <laughs> <laughs> they won't even go to study female rats. Yeah. I mean, that's appalling. This is so interesting because if we're, like what you said about a heart attack, if women's symptoms are slightly different, but the research has all been done on men, and then we right. have male or maybe even female doctors expecting different symptoms. 
Right. You, you'll miss it. Yeah. That gives them a reason to disbelieve what a woman is saying. So yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. Maybe exactly. like a systemic ground up issue with that. Yes. Yeah. Did you have some experience with opioids while you were sort of searching for an yes, answer? I did take, um, I think it was oxycodone hmm. uh, sparingly. And I don't remember whether it helped or not. Uh, I think it helped a little. I think I also took uh, tramadol, which is another opioid. I don't think they actually helped me that much. I certainly didn't take them for very long, but I don't disapprove of people taking them, yeah. obviously. Yeah, I mean, when you're desperate. I, I've taken tramadol as well. And this is something I was just thinking about last night. We were discussing the opioids at dinner, and I was just thinking about how you know, tramadol sort of masked the pain for a couple of hours. And every once in a while, it's like, wow, that's really helpful. That was back when I was much more functional uh, before my flare-up started. I was playing in bands. I'd take a tramadol preemptively to play a show so that my body uh -huh. could be there for me and function. Uh, and it was so incredibly helpful. But it's so funny. It really kind of stopped working over time because it wasn't actually acting on the mechanism that was causing me pain. And mm -hmm. now that I'm on, you know, mast cell stabilizing medication, you know, chromalin sodium is way more effective pain management than tramadol ever was. Yeah, because it's attacking the, the actual problem. It's attacking the mechanism that's causing the pain. Yeah. Exactly. Right. And, but getting a doctor to get to the point where they'd actually listen to me and do the testing and figure out what the thing was took, you know, until I was 38 years old. <laughs> So it's, so, it's so frustrating because I kind of lived through this transition as a patient where when I first started with my chronic pain, uh, doctors were pretty willing to prescribe tramadol. And it was like, mm -hmm. okay, well, we don't know what's wrong. Let's give you an opioid. And tramadol, I believe, is a synthetic opioid, but essentially, you know. I remember, yeah. Yeah, essentially, you know, an opioid. And then the laws changed around it, and all of a sudden, they really didn't want to anymore. Right. Uh, but I kind of felt like for a long time, it was like the doctors thought it was easier to just mask my pain than try to get to the root of it. And I couldn't really find anyone to help me drill down and figure yeah. it out. But then this transition happens where, well, now we can't do that either. We're really not wanting to mask your pain either, but we don't know how to find the root cause. So you're just kind of, you know, out of luck and just on your own. Yeah. 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 It's so, it's so difficult as a patient. And I have to say, I have a niece and a, a daughter uh, who get severe chronic migraines. And that's a huge problem for women more than men. You know, it, I guess the, the theories about what causes migraine have been evolving over time and different theories are now prevalent. But the help does, it seems very inadequate to the problem. Yeah. So many women really suffer and lose days and days a month. Yeah, that's another. I hope you deal with that sometimes on your podcast because that's a that's a oh, huge yeah. problem too. Absolutely. Oh yeah, migraines are a huge problem. I've, we've had several guests with with severe migraines as well. Yeah. How did it change your your worldview to go through this chronic pain? You're so lucky. You found doctors that helped, and you found right. physical therapy that helps. But that doesn't change the fact that you lived through the experience, and you are a medical writer. You know, you're writing this right. column. This is your world. And then all of a sudden you're a patient and you get to see what it's like from the patient's perspective. How did that change things for you? Oh, well, I, I was starting to say, I mean, it's, you have tons of power as a reporter. You can talk to the head honchos pretty much anywhere and put it in the paper on page one. As a patient, you have no power. It's just stunning. And, and no, um, as a journalist, I felt like I had a right to demand information. You know, hey, I'm, I'm here for the public, you know, 
tell me what you've been working on. As a patient, I felt very powerless and more powerless for myself than if I were being an advocate for my husband. Somehow I was willing to fight for other people. Fighting for myself was harder. It's definitely yeah. harder. Um, shouldn't be, but for me and I think for a lot of other people, it is. I totally um, relate to that. I've, I've heard yeah. similar things also from other people. I totally relate to that because I think when, when a doctor tells your loved one that, oh, there's nothing we could do. Oh, this is just all in your head. You know, just, just, you know, wait it out and it'll go away. When you're sitting there with your loved one, all you can feel is anger. And you just, right. you say to that doctor, right. no, that's unacceptable. This is my right. loved one. Exactly. This is yes. unacceptable. But when a doctor says it to you, it's, you sort of, you know, we're trained to believe that doctors are authority figures. And then you have an authority figure telling you personally, your life, your value, your pain isn't as important. And then you internalize that. And then you start gaslighting yourself. Yes, that's very true. Well, I have to say you are the wisest podcaster I have encountered. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I have a a lot of experience being in pain. Um, I'm curious to talk to you about what you're saying about exercise. I think this is really, really an important topic. And you've researched this. You've written a book about it. What, what is the book called? Uh, it's called Exercise is Medicine. Yeah. And I actually i am very fond of this book. There's a lot of great information. I mean, everybody knows we should exercise. That's sort of a given. But And I knew that and I've been exercising my whole life. I did not realize as a science writer how many body systems were influenced in a positive direction by exercise. Um, I mean, I like molecular biology, which is sort of sophisticated stuff. But the scientists who study exercise really know down to the molecule what happens when we exercise. And basically, we are built to exercise. Our bodies are built that way. We're supposed to be running around chasing giraffes or something. (laughs) We're not supposed to be sitting in front of computer screens all day long. You know, we become very sedentary, very obese. Um, That stuff is not healthy. Now exercise is something we, we sort of have to add on to our day. It's not integral to our getting dinner, mm-hmm. you know, we're right, chasing right. Our, chasing animals for food or even planting, you know, vegetables that we have to harvest. We, we have a very unhealthy Western lifestyle and you can compensate by exercise, but you do have to do it. Right. You know, add it on to your day. And it's so, so hard when you are in chronic pain to exercise. Oh, yes. Yeah. Do you have any tips on that? That's something that I kind of banged my head against for years until I sort of found my own personal pathway through it and and got myself back into more motion. But for years, it felt impossible to me. I just felt like there's no way I can exercise when I'm in this amount of pain. Right. Yeah, that is very hard. I mean, I I don't know your situation, but I swim a lot and swimming is pretty good because your body weight is supported by the water. Mm. So for a lot of people with orthopedic problems like knee problems or hip problems or shoulder problems or whatever, swimming um, can really help or water aerobics can help because you're, you're not getting the jarring motion of running or even walking, but some milder exercises like yoga and stretching and stuff that, that can help. I mean, The aerobic stuff is what people really need the most. But I think a lot of physical therapists are very good at designing exercises that you can do with with whatever ailments you've got. But again, as you were saying, it's a lot of work being a patient. 
But one thing that does help people a lot is if you can exercise in a group, because mm. uh, there's sort of the social benefits of that. And if you make a commitment to somebody to meet them at eight o'clock in the morning to go for a walk, you're going to do it because you don't want to let them down. So there's an advantage to that. Yeah. Basically, move whatever body parts can still move is my <laughs> recommendation. Yeah, I, and that actually is very similar to the conclusion that I came to is that, you know, when I was severely flared up, exercise wasn't an option. So, right. it, it started to become, what movement can I do? What body parts can I move? You know, right. I might be lying on the floor, lifting my arms up and down, and that's yeah. better better than nothing. That's right. When you're in a situation where you're flared up and you're stuck on the couch and you're immobile, there's a huge difference between a little bit of movement and no movement, a huge right. difference. And then for me, you know, getting a wheelchair was just one of the greatest things I ever did for myself because suddenly I could go for a roll. Um, you know, yeah. I, I couldn't go for a walk anymore, but I could go for a roll. And even if it was just a short one, a few blocks around the neighborhood, I'm getting out, I'm getting some sunshine, I'm getting some fresh air, moving myself onto my own power in a manual wheelchair. But you know, th this is where it's so individualized. And yeah. th there's so many different illnesses out there, so many different disabilities, and so many different levels of functionality. So it really becomes about like, what can you do? And for some people, right. you know, having a physical therapist is crucial for that. And unfortunately, for some people, that is inaccessible. But you know, hopefully, if you're in a position where your chronic illness requires a physical therapist to get exercise, hopefully, that is covered by ins your insurance. But you know, oh, that's another whole. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> let's not go there. That is such a mess. <laughs> yeah, it is a total mess. You know, and I, I'm so yeah. lucky with the insurance I have, but I know that a lot yeah. of people aren't out there in the world. That's right. It seems like you, when you write a novel, you kind of, uh, or or one of your science books you sort of get really deep into a certain subject for a while. Yeah, that's true. So you've dived really deep into exercise for exercise as medicine. What are the other topics that you've gone really deep on? Well, this CRISPR, this gene editing yeah. technique, that's my, my first novel. Um, and that's, I, I, I like that book. That was fun. And um, people can get that on Amazon too, if they want. I'm working on another novel about offshore wind farms. Mm. Uh, again. Um, there's an evil, evil person and a journalist who uncovers what he's doing. Even the wind farms are a great thing. I mean, we need them. Yeah. Um, but some of the people are unscrupulous. So, yes, I, I like to dive deep. Yeah. Tell me, tell me about what you've learned about CRISPR. Oh, CRISPR is, um, it's a fascinating, and again, it's C-R-I-S-P-R, and that stands for a whole mouthful of things. Um, it's a way of cutting and pasting genes using special enzymes to take out, like in your case, theoretically, you might take out the gene if they could find it, uh, that causes this uh, mutation in this malformation or whatever it is in your mast cells yeah. and take out that gene and put in a normal gene. And then in theory, your problem would go away. I mean, they're doing that for sickle cell anemia, which is a horrible disease mostly affecting African-Americans and um, very painful. Red blood cells get misshapen. And when they sort of go around the corners of your elbows and your shoulders and your circulation, it causes enormous pain, clearly caused by a malformation in one gene. They have been doing studies on people and so far it's looking fabulous. And there are a lot of other genes 
There's one gene for blindness that has been fixed with uh, with CRISPR. And every day I get a whole, I'm on a listserv that I get a whole bunch of, uh, you know, stories about the progress of CRISPR. It's also, there's a downside to it. I mean, if, if you could end up creating designer babies and we'd all be five foot two eyes of blue and blonde hair and do we want that? That's terrifying, but that's like getting into eugenics. It is. And, um, you know, there was that famous case a few years ago about the Chinese guy who did CRISPR on twins a little little girl twins uh as embryos to try to uh introduce a gene that would protect them against aids so it was sort of a noble purpose but he didn't get the permissions it wasn't you know the scientific community did not approve of this he did it kind of as a renegade guy and and ended up under house arrest for years um you know you really don't you don't want to be messing with people's genes you do want to be helping to fix things when it's clear that the the fix is better than not a fix. And that becomes an interesting philosophical question of, yes. of which is which. And, uh, you know, for right. me, not being a scientist and not knowing much about how all this works, I'd just be so afraid, you know, if we make an alteration to my DNA, is the whole thing going to unravel? <laughs> right. And, you know, what effect would it have on your kids? Is it a heritable thing or yeah. not a heritable wow, thing? Wow, that's fascinating to think about, too. Yeah, there's a lot of ethical questions. And I think, you know, the population as a whole is, is so worried about everything else right now. We haven't really focused on CRISPR, but it's, I love it. I think it has huge potential for good. But like other scientific advances, you know, society has to grapple with the potential downside as well. Yeah. And for your novel, it sounds like you're sort of extrapolating what would an evil person do with this? Yes. What could they do? And how would it be found out? Um, how would you tell? Yeah. What's it like to put yourself in that mindset? It was fun. <laughs> <laughs> and I actually, I had a wonderful consultant, I, uh, a, a very famous geneticist at Harvard, helped me understand exactly how CRISPR works. And um, he he proofread my book several times to make sure I got the science right. So that was great. That awesome. was great. Yeah. And it sounds like you've also done a lot of research about chronic pain. And I'm so curious. Oh, I have. Yeah, I'm so yeah. curious to hear your your thoughts, your recommendations. What do we do as chronic pain patients? I know it's different for everyone, but for someone who's really you know, done a deep dive on this topic. I'd love to pick your brain about it a little bit. Well, one thing that I think really helps people a lot is uh, at least around here in Boston, there are a number of chronic pain uh, support groups for people where, yeah. where chronic pain patients come together. Uh, I went to one uh, as a reporter, not as a patient a few years ago, and it was eye-opening. I mean, people really can help each other you know, the medical system isn't great at helping people all too often, but the chronic pain patients are, were, have been incredibly helpful to each other. They can say, you know, this doctor didn't help me, this doctor did, or this treatment helped me, this treatment didn't, or, um, you know, just all sorts of different advice and support. You know, you, know the, you go into one of those groups and you are believed. No one is saying, you know, you look okay. <laughs> you know it doesn't show that you're in pain um so that's another resource for people there's a there's a group called i think it's the american chronic pain foundation there's a whole bunch of i'm sure you know these resources as well um but people can just google chronic pain support chronic pain foundation 
Yeah, I'm actually, I'm unfamiliar with the Chronic Pain Foundation. That's something I should be familiar with for sure. Yeah, uh, I think it was run by a woman named Penny Cowan. Um, I mean, I did this a number of years ago, so I can't remember. But yes, sure. you can uh, you can Google around and find some good stuff. Some of these groups are supported by Big Pharma, which gives them a tainted name. That's true for many diseases where there are patient support groups because the money is in the pharmaceuticals. <laughs> so, you know, you get a bias, but you know, that's where the money is. So that's why, why these groups get supported. Yeah. And you know, as an individual, we're just trying to get better. We're just trying to, you know, make it through the day and figure out how to get through the next day. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I have one more question for you. You know, you had a really successful chronic pain journey. You managed to get to a place where you're no longer in chronic pain. And that is amazing. So what do you think are the key points that really helped you get through that? If you could send a message back in time to yourself, what would you tell yourself? Well, I would tell myself I'd been lucky because I think other people try just as hard as I did and don't get better. So, I mean, I have a lot of sympathy for people who weren't as lucky as I was. But I do think, I mean, going to a therapist helps, being persistent and finding doctors, exercise helps. But it's tough. It's tough out there. You do your best, but a lot of people still are stuck, uh, and that that's a shame. I mean, I feel like I, I don't want to be the role model for a successful pain patient because a lot of it was luck, mm. and uh, some people are not as lucky. Yeah, yeah, but, you know, <laughs> perseverance, continuing to fight for yourself, believing yes. in yourself, don't let those doctors gaslight you, steamroll you, don't gaslight yourself, right. you know. right. And you're totally right that for different people, it takes a completely different amount of time or a completely different answer. And it's just the the commonality is the fight that you have to keep right. fighting. Never give up on yourself. Right. Yeah, That's right. Well, Judy, right. tell us where people can go to find your books, to find you on social okay. media. You can go to my website, which is judyforman.com, which is J-U-D-Y-F as in Frank, O-R-E-M-A-N.com. Don't forget the E in Foreman. Um, you can also get my books on Amazon. And my latest book is a memoir, which we didn't talk about emotional pain in mm. this uh, broadcast. But um, the, the book starts out, I, I had a very difficult childhood with a lot of it yielded a lot of emotional pain that I've also been working with and sort of coming out from under. So the book is called Let the More Loving One Be Me. And um, I'm getting great response from that one. So that's very good. So if you want to look at all the books, you can go on Amazon or my website. Yeah, amazing. Emotional pain is a major pain as well. No doubt. It is. <laughs> it is. <laughs> yeah. And it can take a lifetime to process through. So that's I'm so interested that you're talking about that in your writing. That's That's really admirable. And I'm, I'm curious about CRISPR. I want to check that out. <laughs> check it out. <laughs> awesome. Well, Judy, thank Judy. you so much for coming on the show. You have such a unique perspective and incredible career. And it's so fascinating to hear how your own experience with chronic pain sort of weaved in and out of, of your career and influenced you. Thank you, too. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Yeah, it's really exciting to get to talk to you and to hear a bit of your uh, expertise and hear your story today. You're my best interviewer yet. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that means a lot. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Major Pain. I'm Jesse Mercury, your host and the producer of this podcast. Artwork by Egg Salad Salad. Our theme music is the song Time Machine 
from my sci-fi synth-pop album, available at jessemercury.bandcamp.com. Send your thoughts or questions to our email address, majorpainpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use that address to find us on PayPal. Tips are greatly appreciated. Don't forget to leave a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Find more information about this show or leave a comment on any episode at our website, majorpainpodcast.com. Major Pain is supported by listeners on Patreon. Thank you to our $2 per month supporters, our $7 per month patrons Naomi Adele Smith, Sunny Roberts, Laura Stevens, Kelsey Madsen, All Around Foundation Waterproofing, Alexandria Henderson, Justin Minnick, Heather Muncie, and Robert, and our $25 per month producers Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Trish O'Brien, and Hipster Leia. Learn how you can support the show while receiving special recognition, gifts, and monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash majorpainpodcast.